Well, I want to say first that I'm not going to address you as people who are experiencing homelessness. I'm just going to call you homeless because when I've talked with many of you, you don't seem to care so much about being politically correct, but just simply say, I'm homeless. And maybe it has more of a desperate punch to it to say, I'm homeless. And I, I kind of get it. If I was drowning, I probably wouldn't tell people that I'm experiencing a drowning. But I understand the intent behind this new rule to not call people homeless, but to call them people experiencing homelessness. It's an effort to not make homelessness anybody's identity. And I fully agree with that. Your identity is that you are, first of all, human, made in the image of God. You may be a Californian or a Mexican or from some other place in the world. You may be an artist or a carpenter. Uh, you may be a lover of animals. You may be a mom or a dad. Your identity is the sum of hundreds of things that, that make you, you. The fact that you happen to be homeless is not your identity. It's just your present challenge. Now, I'm not an expert on the problem of homelessness. I'm just a pastor. I can't say that I've personally experienced the distress of homelessness, but I've spent time talking to many, many homeless people since I first began serving Jesus in 1989. When I first became a Christian, I lived in New York City and had more time than I knew what to do with. One of my favorite ways to spend time was to just get to know the many homeless who were all along the street where I worked in Manhattan. And most of them were planted in the same spot. They kind of had their same little area each day. So, you know, I couldn't get to know them just by seeing their face uh, almost daily. They rarely stood in New York. This is just how it worked. They rarely stood up and asked people for money, but would kind of just sit with their belongings and maybe a cup or something, a hat put out in front of them uh, in hopes to get some, some money, which people did give, give them money all day long. And I'd always ask if it was okay if I could sit down with them and talk with them. And I, I don't recall ever being rejected by any of them. I was always warmly welcomed to share the little area that they occupied. And I mainly just listened to them share their stories. And if I'm honest, you know, back then I felt like I was doing something noble by sitting with them and maybe giving them some food or whatever. But what I gained from my time spent with them was far greater than anything I learned in college. Um, it was just an education in itself. 
And I'm so grateful for every one of those conversations. Now, as I'm writing this piece here, um, I'm sitting in my home office. And my home is pretty small, but has a little yard, and the neighbors are pretty cool. It's not the greatest house in the world. Um, there's probably quite a few things that need to be fixed, but it's home for me and my wife. And I believe that everyone should have a home. Everyone should have a place to rest. And it makes me mad that there are millions of people throughout the world, including many children, who do not have a home. If I can just say it plainly, I think it's stupid. I believe everyone should have a home, just like everyone should have clean water and should have food. Everyone should have air to breathe. I'm convinced that these things are the God-given rights of every human being. I just think it's stupid that in the neighborhood of our church, we're on Broad Street in Providence, that there are hundreds of empty houses in the neighborhood. Right in Trinity Square, just a few hundred yards down the street, there are empty houses, colorful, big, huge, I think three, four-story houses just sitting empty. There are empty houses, and yet there are people sleeping in the cemetery across the street. I just think this is stupid. I think it's stupid that society can't fix the problem when I think of how much the government spends each year in our state or federal government I mean, it's billions, it's billions and billions of dollars. But let's just think about Rhode Island, about a million people here, right? Uh, I think a couple thousand houses would probably do the trick. I read that there's about a thousand people who experience homelessness on a given day in Rhode Island. Um, I read recently, too, that there are 150 million homeless in the world, and some say 1.5 billion with inadequate housing. But again, let's come back to Rhode Island. People need homes. We're not talking about a lot of homes. A couple thousand would, would, do, would do the trick. And I'm not talking about shelters. No one likes living in a shelter. I'm talking about houses. Not fancy, they can be small. They can be a one, you know, one floor of a house, but I just believe no one should be without a home. Is this attainable? You know, we, I can almost hear the objections, oh, the complexities of it all. It's interesting how we can, we kind of solve as human beings, we solve the problems that we want to solve. That seems to be the, just the truth. I don't think it's that hard to solve. I actually read that the country of Finland, uh, there's no homelessness there. They've just 
figured out a way to just make that a right for people, and they just make sure that everybody has a place to live. Or even places like Japan, I think the population is like 130, 140 uh, million people. It's about a third of America in terms of population. But I read there's only about 5,000 homeless in Japan. Um, I think it's attainable to solve the problem. There are about a million people in the ocean state who have a place of their own. My question is, can we not find a couple thousand more places for people to live? I'm not saying we have to build houses. Um, again, there are thousands and thousands of empty, abandoned houses all throughout Providence and other cities. When I think about uh, the compassion and creativity of people in Rhode Island, I, I just believe this is attainable. I mean, I think if there was some momentum, I, I think that Home Depot and Lowe's and other lumber yards and different contractors would come alongside and just make this happen. I, I believe that uh, people with extra money, which is a lot of people in Rhode Island, would gladly give to a cause like this. Again, I'm not talking about shelters. No one is excited about shelters. The homeless need homes. Someone says, yeah, but there's not enough empty houses to renovate. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I, I think there are. There's got to be thousands of empty houses, many abandoned houses that have just been sitting that way for years that could be renovated. But, I mean, have you ever flown in, you know, over Rhode Island? There's a lot of green, and I love the green, and I love all the land that we have, and the state owns a lot of land. But do we need all this land? I mean, for what? I understand that, you know, we need trees for the environment. I get all that. But a couple thousand tiny houses isn't going to put a dent in the massive state-owned land. I mean, I think of even just Roger Williams Park, which is huge. Even if 5% of the park were kind of set apart to create a, a tiny house village or something, I don't think it would affect any, anything. Isn't there anyone in the creative capital that can come up with a creative plan to house people? What if we built tiny house villages scattered all throughout the state? Maybe every town agrees to give a small portion of land. 100 houses in Bristol, 200 in Newport, 50 in Warren, 90 in Cranston, maybe 500 in Providence. I'm not talking about low-income housing. I'm talking about just free housing. Just give people a place to live. Just give the house to those who really, really need it. And I understand, again, there's complexities. And, but I just think that Rhode Island could be maybe the first state in the United States with zero homelessness. Finland has, um, I was looking it up this morning, five, over 5 million people in their population with zero homelessness. 
Rhode Island has about a million. We can do it. When God looks down on Rhode Island from above, what does he see? Well, you know, pull out your Google map and click satellite view, and you'll see just a lot of green land, a lot of space, a lot of giant parking lots that are unused, a lot of abandoned properties. There's no reason why anyone should be sleeping under a bridge or a cardboard box or in a cemetery. The Lord knows literally how much the collective wealth is of all those in Rhode Island who do have a place to live, myself included. Are we really going to tell God, oh, well, uh, we just didn't have enough money in Rhode Island to house the homeless? I mean, from God's perspective, it is inexcusable for anyone to be without a place to live. Some say, well, you can't just give people houses or they'll take advantage of the government's generosity. People need to learn how to work to put a roof over their head. That just makes me want to scream with indignation. And I just, I don't like when people say things like that. Yes, I get it. People are human. Uh, Some are capable of working and they don't want to work because they just want to loaf around and be lazy and do drugs. And yes, I get that, that some homeless are doing that, just taking advantage, milking the system or whatever, but not all. And I would say not most. Most people who are homeless don't want to be homeless. I've never met a homeless person who likes being homeless. They all hang on to a hope of getting their own place one day. And so I believe it's unsympathetic to just say that homeless people need to get off their butts and work to put a roof over their heads. I have heard countless stories of homeless people through the years. Many had great jobs, great education. Uh, Many had families, owned houses and cars. The majority of people who are homeless have experienced some level of trauma in their life. And many of them have PTSD. Um, Many struggle with mental illness or physical illnesses. They suffered severe domestic abuse at one time in their life, sexual abuse. Uh, Some were abandoned by their family. Some fled dangerous situations. And some have lost all family support. Really, anyone could end up homeless by just a few changes of circumstance. If you're homeless today, it is likely not your fault. Life happened, things happened that were beyond your control, and I believe you deserve a home. People may say that you are getting what you deserve, but the fact is that 
no one really deserves anything. I mean, we're all undeserving according to God's word. Uh, I mean, why do some people drive a fancy car and others have never owned a car? Why do some people live in the beautiful suburbs and others in shanty towns or cardboard dwellings around the earth? I don't fully understand it. But I know that it's not because the wealthy are deserving and the poor are not. The fact is that as I said, everyone is undeserving, and that's really what the grace of God is all about. Grace is when God gives things to us, gives his love, and gives eternal salvation to us, uh, not because we deserve it, but because he is good, and he lavishes his gifts upon his children. Christ died for all people, rich and poor. And the reason that some people are rich and others are poor is not because God has blessed the rich and cursed the poor. No. There are many very, very godly poor around the world. And there are many wicked rich. There are many godly rich and there are some wicked poor. But I think really it's because those who are rich will not share with those who are poor. There is no reason for anyone on the planet to be without a home or without food or without clean water or without clothes. There are more than enough resources on this planet to accommodate everyone. The problem is not that God hasn't given us enough resources. The problem is stinginess. Listen, if you are homeless today, I'm sorry that you are in that situation. God is fighting for you. I am fighting for you. Many people in this city are fighting for you. Uh, you are loved. I realize that some in society look down on you because you are homeless. They think, I guess, they are better than you. But don't believe that for a single minute because you are worth as much to God as any other person on this planet. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows every hair on your head and notices you and sympathizes with your suffering and works on your behalf. Now, you might be someone who believes in God, but maybe you've never experienced the transforming power of God. Okay, maybe you don't feel like you deserve it. I mean, you've been told you don't deserve anything uh, by society, and so maybe you feel like in your relationship with God, you don't deserve his good gifts or his grace and his love or his transforming power. But if you've never experienced that transforming power, it may be for a number of different reasons. For example, it may be that you just never really heard the gospel 
of Jesus, like the true gospel. Because there are a lot of false gospels around. And you might have just been taught that all you have to do is, you know, kind of believe about Jesus and, you know, he'll be sort of like a good luck charm for you. But that's not the gospel. When when God rescues someone, he doesn't do it in a lame way. You know, he doesn't just like uh, secure your place in heaven, but he just keeps you as you are in this life. No, he begins to transform every single aspect of your life. It's a resurrection from spiritual death. Now, it doesn't mean that God is going to take us out of poverty and uh, bring us to the heights of uh, wealth and give us a mansion by the sea over in Newport or something like that. It, that's not, God's intent is not to make all of his people rich. That would probably ruin us. He gives us what we need. Actually, there's a prayer in the Bible that says something like, uh, Lord, uh, don't give me so little uh, that I curse you, but don't give me so much that I'll forget about you. <laughs> you know, God kind of knows, like, how much to give us. I keep trying to convince him that I would be a great candidate for great wealth, uh, but he's not convinced. I've been trying to convince him for a long time. Uh, but obviously, he knows the best. I can't handle it, I guess. He gives us what we can handle. But my point is he totally changes you from the inside out. It's not just a little belief that we have that, you know, when we die, we'll go to heaven because we believe that there is a God and Jesus died for us. No, the grace of God isn't just sort of a, a free ticket to heaven. The grace of God is, is the very substance of God that comes into our lives and works inside of us, changes us. I mean, it removes hate and puts love in there. It breaks addictions. It just transforms even our way of thinking. I remember when I came to Christ at 21, I had done so many drugs in such a short period of time, just a few, maybe three, four years, that my mind was toast. I couldn't even read the Bible. I had to, I had to read the Bible out loud because my mind was so fried from doing so many drugs. And yet, you know, the Lord healed my mind and began to give me a clarity of thinking. It took some time. It wasn't overnight. But God changes us. He heals relationships. He restores. He reconciles us to people. Maybe we have enemies, people, family members that we've hurt or children that we uh, deeply hurt and wounded or parents or whatever. God puts all of this. This is what the grace of God does. It's not just a ticket to heaven. He begins to transform every aspect of our lives. He makes us whole. This is what God wants to do in each of us. If you've never had that kind of total transformation, here's what to do. Okay, I'm going to make this really simple. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Just throw yourself at God's mercy and just 
cry out to him. Humble yourself before the creator and just say, God, just have mercy on me. Change me. You know, Jesus told the story of, you know, this one guy who was all, I don't know, wealthy and religious and smart and educated. And he was standing there like, oh, I thank God that I'm not like this sinner down here. You know, I fast and I give and I do all these things. And Jesus basically, in so many words, said the guy wasn't even really praying to God. He was praying to himself. And yet next to this kind of self-righteous religious person was another man who was just on his face, on the ground, like beating his breast, kind of bawling and, and crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, guess which one is going to walk away being at peace with God? It's like a quiz. He said, the one who's beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what God's grace is all about. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody, it's not a, there's no such thing as I've sinned too much that the grace of God can't reach me. Maybe you've killed somebody. Well, if you did, you should really... Uh, turn yourself in, but that's a whole nother story. But even if you've killed somebody, even if you've done the most horrific things, you've stolen from people, you've, I don't know, what just listed all, you've done all of it. You've done a little bit of all the worst things. I mean, if you think about the Bible and the people who God lavished in the Bible, do you know Moses killed somebody? And God raised him up to be like one of the most powerful spiritual leaders in all of human history. I mean, think about David. He killed somebody, had a crush on a beautiful woman, committed adultery with her, and then to try to lie and cover it all up, he had her husband killed And yet, God poured out his grace upon David. I mean, the greatest Christian probably who ever lived was the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. In Paul, we don't know all the details, but we know he was, he was a terror to Christians, dragging them uh, out of their homes and into prison and having people killed and Maybe you remember the story of Stephen being stoned to death. Stephen, this righteous man filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, stoned to death. And the Bible says that, that Paul, his name formerly was Saul, that Saul was just there giving approval to this. And yet God takes this murderous persecutor of the saints of God this blasphemer of God and turns him into a trophy of God's grace. Nobody is too far gone. The grace of God can touch any one of us. But you say, but I'm 79 years old, but I'm, you know, 85 years old. I'm 50 
six years. I've already wasted. I've already done so much. None of that matters. I don't care if your sins pile up to the highest heavens. God is able to just blow them away and cast them as far as the east is from the west and make you completely clear and without guilt before him. He'll do that. We know that. Scripture promises that. He is a willing, able, and willing to do that. He's just waiting for us to come and again, kind of get down and just cry out for his mercy. Turn away from our sins and just say, God, I need you. So cry out to God day and night until the power of the Spirit falls upon you and purges your heart of sin. My last thought is this. You might be someone who has been homeless for so long and has been so mistreated by society that you can't even imagine that God has a plan for your life. You may feel like you've screwed up so much stuff that there's no way forward. You might think maybe, just maybe, God will forgive you, but there's no way you'll do anything great or be anything great for God. But I'm telling you right now that God wants to do big things in and through you. Many of the greatest men and women of God were once homeless and broken and terrible sinners, as I just talked about, uh, David and Moses and Paul. Some of the people I know who are closest to God used to be heroin addicts, used to be homeless, used to be criminals. Yet God specializes in taking the worst cases of poverty and sin and raising them up almost as a kind of example of what God can do. It it glorifies God when God transforms someone who society has completely written off and just changes them and they become filled with the love of God and they become amazing and do good works for God. The world is stunned by that. So listen today, my friends. This Jesus thing isn't just a little thing that you kind of believe. Jesus is not merely an invisible friend that you talk to in a pinch. He's not the man upstairs that you nod to, kind of thank once in a while. He wants all of you. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to give you new life. Jesus promised that streams of living water would flow out of your inmost being. All the spiritual riches of heaven are open to you. The waters of life are open. The Bible says, whosoever is willing, let him come and drink freely of the waters of life. Isaiah 55 says, come, come to the waters and drink, be satisfied. So my prayer is that you would let God lavish you with his 
presence. Just ask and keep asking him to change your life. He will do it. Amen. I want to end today by asking you guys if you're able to just stand up and uh, we, I just want to pray for the many in our neighborhood and of course throughout Rhode Island and throughout the world, but especially just our neighborhood. I just want us to pray as a church. What can we do? What should we do? I know we've done many things through the years uh, to help the homeless, serve the homeless, but what more can we do? And I don't know sometimes. They are complicated matters. We don't have that much money, you know, as a church. We can only do so much. But maybe we can catalyze a movement. Maybe we can stir other hearts. I don't know. But let's ask God. It's just not acceptable. I don't want to just accept this problem in our city. Well, you know, whatever. You know, quote the Bible. Well, the poor will have with us always. That is such a wrong interpretation. Like, no. Jesus wasn't saying, yeah, we're always going to have poor people, so don't worry about it. That's so unscriptural. Some say there's 2,000 scriptures about the poor. And there are so many calls of God to serve the poor. And, you know, Isaiah 50, there's just so many. We, we can't just ignore it, neglect it. It's really part of what it means to be a Christian. I know some might disagree with me or not believe that. I mean, I think if you go to Renaissance Church, you believe this. But I think that it's just fundamentally part of being a Christian is that you love your neighbor, right? What's the greatest command? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so if our neighbors, it doesn't mean, well, if we live in the suburbs and we have wealthy neighbors that, you know, it's, we just have to make sure we help them shovel their snow and all that. It's like, yeah, that's part of it. But it's like our neighbors. It's like these are our neighbors. These are our church neighbors for sure. Our neighbors are just the people that live in, in our city, in our region. And many of them are struggling every single day to just get through the day. And it is what it means to be a Christian is to be concerned about that and to care about that and to do something about that, to pray about that, to give to causes, to be with people, to try to help people, certainly as a church, to open our arms to the homeless. Um, Let's pray. I know I'm kind of going off now, but <laughs> uh, Father, we, we just want to do this the right way. We, we don't want to, we don't want to write anybody off. I mean, the, these people around us who are homeless or, or maybe just one notch away from homelessness, I think about the many single moms in this city who are just struggling, who are terrified of being homeless because it's such a struggle. I think about the family shelter right down the street that I've been inside, met different families there, and just, you know, they're mostly single moms with their two or three or four kids or whatever. And it's just not fun to be there. That's not, 
Nobody wants to give that to their kids. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for your ideas. I pray for a baptism of creativity in this church and in this city, God, that boasts of being the creative capital. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just create, uh, I don't know, like, you know, sculptures uh, to put in downtown Providence or, you know, whatever. God, I pray that we would create opportunities for the homeless. I pray that we would create housing for the homeless. I pray, God, that we would just create systems. We would use our creativity to solve some of the problems of the complexities of trying to serve the homeless. God, we cry out, Lord, that you would just work powerfully in the state of Rhode Island. We pray maybe that this state, God, could be the first state. It's the smallest state in the union, so maybe that makes it more attainable. But Lord, maybe this could be a state where there could be zero homelessness. And maybe another state would follow the lead of this state. Lord, why not? I know, God, that it's, it's not even a question if, if it's attainable. Of course it's attainable. I mean, you think about just the wealth of a handful of people who live in Newport, for example. Just, just a handful of people could probably eliminate the problem completely. But we're talking about the collective generosity and creativity of a million people. I'm sure we could house a couple thousand people. Lord, we cry out for your ideas. We cry out as a church, Lord, that we would love, that we would bleed, that we would have compassion. Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would have a certain uh, stubbornness about our compassion. Lord, that we wouldn't just be indifferent or just, well, you know, there's always going to be poor people. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't think like that, that it would bother us that people are sleeping in a cemetery, that it would bother us when we hear about somebody dying under a bridge in the winter or somebody who overdoses right in our backyard or across the street. Lord, I pray that these things would just rip us apart and not just cause us to cry, but that we would be moved to action. Lord, give us your heart. Don't let us get cold. Don't let us be apathetic about these things. Put zeal within us. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys, for listening today. I uh, hope you just take this to heart and take it to prayer. And I don't know. Let's, let's see what the Lord's going to do in the days to come. Thanks for listening. Love you.